You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. But this is the in-between episode. It's different from our regular programming, so we thought we'd entertain you with these story sessions where we read, or the author, in this case this week, the author herself, reads the first chapter of a book that we recommend. And that means you can sample it while you're doing the ironing or, you know, knitting a pair of mittens or commuting in the car. Uh, it's your way of sampling the book without having to go to the bookshop because we're going to bring the bookshop to you. This week, I have chosen The Charleston Scandal by Pamela Hart, and I'm so excited. It's no secret that I love Pamela Hart. Longtime listeners will know that Pamela is also Pamela Freeman. So she writes under the name of both Pamela Hart and Pamela Freeman, and she is our Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre. And she's had she's written over 40 books, absolutely prolific, and is one of Australia's best and most loved writers of historical fiction, as well as books for kids and young adults. This is another brilliant book from Pamela, where she once again spins an exciting tale combined with careful historical research. But you know, enough from me, let's hear from the author herself. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Val. Your book, I'm loving it, absolutely loving it, loving it and savouring every word. Um, for those people who haven't got a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Well, I think of it as Downton Abbey meets 42nd Street. Oh, that's so, such a great description, isn't it? Um, it's about a girl called Kit Linton who is Australian but with English relatives, um, and she comes from quite a quite a privileged background. Uh, but she's an actress and she goes to England, as many Australian actresses did in the 20s, um, and becomes um, an actress on the West End stage. And things happen. Um, the Charleston scandal happens, which is uh, associating with the Prince of Wales, um, and she has to basically decide where she belongs, whether she belongs in the world of aristocracy or whether she belongs in the world of the theatre. Uh, and London Theatre in 1923 uh, was a really interesting place. People like Fred Astaire and Noel Coward, Tallulah Bankhead. Um, but it was a very different kind of world to the world she'd come from. So um, I see it as Kit kind of figuring out where she belongs is really what the story's about. How did this idea form, you know, an Australian going to England in the 1920s and, um, and all of those things? Well, there, there really were people. So in particular sure. there, were, there was a couple, um, Mag, uh, Madge Elliott and Cyril Richards, who were big stars. And we've never heard of them, but in their mm. time in the 20s and 30s, they were worldwide stars. Mm-hmm. And when they, they eventually got married, um, when they came home to Sydney to get married in St Mary's Cathedral, it was the biggest wedding Australia had ever seen. So it was like, imagine Nicole Kidman married Hugh Jackman. That's right. what it was like. Right? <laughs> there were 5,000 people in Hyde Park waiting to see her come out of, of the church and mm-hmm. at a time when there was like 100,000 people living in Sydney. Wow. Um, 
<clears throat> so, so reading about them in part of research that I did for The War Bride, when mm. I was looking at Jane and Jonesy, the characters in that go on the stage, um, and so I read up about, you know, actors of the time, and I thought that's a great story, you know, going to London and becoming a star. And that's where it started, and I started doing research about London in the 1920s. I, I'd come out of a, a difficult uh, personal time, um, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to write something fun, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and the last four historical novels had been about World War One, and I'd enjoyed writing them a lot, but, you know, they had their grim aspects. Mm. And I just wanted to write something that was fun. And could anything be more fun than the 1920s? <laughs> yes. Now, it is absolutely fun. And your description of Downton Abbey meets 42nd Street is absolutely perfect. <laughs> I, As I'm reading it, I'm actually seeing this. I'm just going, this is a miniseries. I can totally see the whole thing in um, my head. Yes. Now, the, now, the thing is, even though it, it is fun, it is compelling and even though it's, say, not like a murder mystery where you're wondering who done it, you are constantly wondering what actions the character, the characters are going to take next and what decisions they're going to make and who they're going to end up with, if anyone, or, you know, that sort of thing. So how do you – and that's what I love about your books is that I can never pick it. I can <laughs> never guess. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I absolutely love that because, honestly, I am one of those people who, you know, I watch television and I, I, I don't know who done it. And if I do, that means it's a bad, badly constructed show. And that's the same with books. If I know from the start what's going to happen, I, I don't think you've constructed a good book. And I never know with your books, which I lo love that sense of anticipation, which you have um, – even though it's not a whodunit kind of thing. So how do you build that sense of anticipation in the reader and build that sense of the reader just always wanting to know what's going to happen next? Well, <laughs> there are two answers it's to that. One, question, it's a big question, I know. It's a big question. One of the answers makes me look incredibly clever, <laughs> um, <laughs> which right. is that you always have to set up the story questions. So the first third of the book, the first half of the book, you're setting up the story questions, which mm. the second half of the book will answer. And as long as you've got enough interesting and compelling story questions in there, the reader will want to keep reading. Mm. Um, so that's the, the answer that makes me look clever. And it's mm. true. The thing is you don't always do that in first draft. So this, mm. this book has been really edited. I have thrown away a total of 70,000 words. Wow. Um, I started with two entirely different characters. I started with Jane and Jonesy from The War Bride as my, yeah. as my main characters and then I realised that, no, that, um, that wasn't going to work because it was getting grim again and I wanted fun. Mm. So I had got up to 35,000 words with them. And you'll be pleased to know that I've written that as a novella um, right. which will soon be available. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I changed main characters completely and threw right. away 35,000 words and started again. Um, and I kept the basic idea of the Charleston scandal and, and everything else was new um, mm. because the story questions weren't working properly. So then I wrote the longest of the historical novels that I've ever written, which was 120,000 words, mm. and I sent it off to my uh, to my publishers, and normally they're about ninety five thousand. Um, mm -hmm. Sent it off to my publishers, and they delicately 
<laughs> came back to me and said, um, we're just treating this as a developmental edit, Pamela, not a structural edit. Okay. And that is publisher speak for this is crap. <laughs> okay. Um, they said some nice things about it, but they also quite rightly said that it wasn't compelling enough, that it Ooh. wasn't tight enough, it wasn't leading the reader on. We didn't really understand what Kit was about and what was driving her. Um, there wasn't enough kind of narrative tension. Mm. Um, so I looked at it and I had initially, as you'll hear in the reading, it, the prologue is is the audition for her first um, yeah. for her first role in London, and the the chapter one opens on um, opening night. And there was 25,000 words between those two in mm. the original first draft. Mm. And I just put them out because wow. you, didn't, you didn't really need them. I seeded mm. I, I, I some of the stuff that was in there into the rest, into chapter one and two. Um, but they didn't really push the story forward. They were just the characters getting to know each other. Um, and that was good for me because I needed to get to know them as well. And so that wasn't wasted time. It wasn't wasted effort, mm. um, but it had to go. And another 10,000 from later in the book went. And then I wrote another another extra kind of 10,000, um, which really I hope heightens the tension and makes things um, things much harder for her because you've got to keep making things harder for your, mm. for your character. So, you know, on the one hand, of course I know how to do this, but I know how to do it because I'm prepared to be radically editing. Mm. And that's really important. Yes. Well, you obviously succeeded because it is very tight and it is compelling. Now, the thing with um, any book really is that sometimes, I mean, you often, one often needs to telegraph or signpost certain things so that the ending makes sense, you know. Um, And as I said, the thing I love about your books and this book in particular as well, because that's the one I'm reading at the moment, is that I don't know what's going to happen. Even though there are obviously things being telegraphed, it doesn't make me go, that's what's going to happen. How do you know when you've over-telegraphed or when you've just dropped that hint that's just too much that's going to make someone go, oh, you know, that he, that person's going to do it or whatever? Well, I often don't know what's going to happen. Right. So, so um, there are books where I know exactly what's going to happen and there are books where I'm not sure. Um, I, I had a fair idea in mm. this one. Um, my problem is usually I under-telegraph. Oh. And so my because I'm, I am one of those people who always knows who done it. Oh. Right? So, you know, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you. I cannot tell you the last time I read a book where I had no idea where I got to the end and went, oh, my God, never, doesn't happen. So mm. I tend to assume that my clues are too obvious. Oh. And but because they, okay. they just stare out at me from the page. Yeah. And my editors go, mm, when this happens on page 187, we don't really, we've not really got the reader ready for that. And I go, oh, yes, back on page seven <laughs> there was oh. there was a clue and they go yes I don't think that's quite enough for the average reader Pamela and I have to put more in right uh, right yes. so it's actually quite a gift that you're one of those people who always know. knows who's done it in a strange way I yeah it 
I learn, um, I mean, I have been obsessed with mystery stories for a very long time. And, of course, I'm, I'm mm. writing them. I have a new mystery series starting next year. Yes. Um, so, so I think it's just the way my mind works, really. Yeah, right. Fantastic. Um, but I do, I rely on my readers. I rely on my beta readers and I rely on, mm. um, on my editors. Um, and, you know, once or twice people have come and said, I think it's too obvious that this is going to happen and I've gone right mm. and I'll put a red herring in and I'll yeah. twist the story in a new way so that, so that you get distracted from that thought. Yes, uh, but, yes. But it's been there so that when you come back to the ending, you go, oh, that's right, I'd forgotten about that, and, and it makes sense to you. Um, so it's, a lot of it's editing. A lot of it is going mm. back and just layering stuff in and going, okay, I, this is the main clue. Um, I've got to put something else in at the same time that is at that moment more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the classic red herring. That's how Dorothy Sayers, you know, the Lord Peter Whimsey books, she she would say you've got to put the red herring in with other things that are more distracting. Okay. All right. So let's have a listen to your reading of the prologue and chapter one, and we will continue our chat after that. So here we go. The Charleston Scandal by Pamela Hart. The Charleston Scandal by Pamela Hart Prologue And a five, six, seven, eight. Kit launched into the tap routine with all her enthusiasm and that special smile pasted on her face. This was her edge on the competition. She knew she was one of the best dancers the director had seen because she'd been sneakily watching the auditions of the other girls from the foyer. There were better singers and a couple of real beauties, but none of them had been good at tap, ballet types. As always, the sheer fun of tap dancing took her nerves away, and she could feel that professional smile shift to real enjoyment. Jack Burnies, the director, and the producer, the legendary Charlot, sat up a little straighter in their mid-stall seats, and she burned into the last sequence with extra oomph and landed in the final position, arms out, as if to embrace them both. This was it. She'd done the read-through pretty well. She'd sung in tune and strongly. Now the verdict. The nerves flooded back. It was impossible to believe that she could land a job in the West End, that she'd be good enough for the London theatre. A few years on stage in Sydney wasn't really enough. She was just a country cousin. Thank you, Miss Linton. Just one more thing. Oh, no. Her energy was draining out, but she pulled herself into listening to the director with careful attention position, her stomach knotting. Yes, Mr. Burners? This role requires ballroom dancing as well. We'd like you to go through a waltz with Mr. Gardner. More dancing. Excellent. None of the other girls had been asked to do this. Energy flooded through her again. She grinned at the thought that her mother's insistence that she learn to dance like a lady would be paying off here, of all places. Of course, Mr. Burness. A tall young man emerged from the wings. Dark brown hair, the bluest of eyes and a congenial smile. Yes, 
classic second string leading man, just as she, with her blonde bob and green eyes, was the classic ingenue. The two of them together made the youthful pair who had the main subplot in just about every musical comedy. Their job was to give the stars some time off the stage and to carry the lighter elements of the plot. Let's hope he's a singer, she thought, and that he can lead. Gardiner smiled at her and held out his arms for her to step into dancing position. The way he held her shows he wasn't a professional dancer. His grip wasn't quite tight enough. Damn. Without a good partner, how could she show herself off? But when the music started, he swept her away competently enough, and he knew the steps, so she put everything she had into being graceful, a completely different body shape to tap dancing, submissive and yielding. He was rather dishy. They ended with a dip and a twirl that had Charlot and Bernays nodding with satisfaction. Very good, Charlot said, his voice unexpectedly deep. I think we have our second leads. A pair of colonials, eh? We might make something of that in the publicity. Her heart almost exploded. She was in. She had it. A joy so intense swept her as if she were dissolving from the inside. Ha! Take that, father. She couldn't wait to write home and let them all know that they'd been wrong. She could make it in the theatre in London. She would. Thank you, sir, she said. A moment later, doubt hit her. Could she act well enough? Could she stay the distance? Gardiner squeezed the hand he still held. Yes, he said, his voice rich and deep enough to explain why they'd cast him. Thank you very much. He had the faintest trace of an accent. American? No, if he was a colonial, he was probably Canadian. Go and see Francis in the office next door, Berners said, and he'll sort out your salaries and so forth. Charlot cut in, smiling. Congratulations, children. You're part of the family now. They ran off stage, still hand in hand, laughing. And as soon as they were out of sight, Gardiner picked her up and swung her around, then plopped her back on the floor. We did it, she grinned up at him. We did. He held out his hand, Zeke Gardner, Kit Linton. They shook, mock solemnly. I'll just get into street clothes, I'll be right back. Tap shorts were considered decent on stage, but they'd cause a riot on the street coming as they did halfway up the thigh. She raced to the girl's dressing room and scrambled out of her audition clothes into her stockings and dress. A lovely peacock blue dropped waist with a shawl collar. Nice tan shoes with a French heel, tan gloves, a smart cloche in a darker blue. For a moment she looked at herself in the mirror. She could be any well-dressed girl going out for the day. But she wasn't. She was the new ingenue in a London West End musical. A deep sigh came out of her. It had been a long road to this moment, and she had no confidence that she'd make it any further. She'd just have to carry on without confidence. If she worked hard enough, she wouldn't have time to worry. Zeke Gardner went through the lodging house door and hung his hat on his assigned hook on the coat rack. Good lad, 
Mrs. Coward said to him, smiling as she took the post he'd gathered from the letterbox on the way in. Mrs. Coward dealt with having lodges in her home by having a place for everything. Superficially, she was a flustered, flighty woman, but underneath she was as organised as an army drill sergeant, and a lady by birth, if not in circumstances. He smiled back at her, uplifted by success. I got the part, Mrs. Coward. Oh, that's wonderful. No, no, Mr. Gardner got it. I'll just put the kettle on. He followed her to the kitchen, where she made tea. It was a homely, sunlit room in the mornings, but in late afternoon the shadows were drawing in. He knew better than to turn the light on even one minute before sunset. The cowards had to watch their pennies. As she was pouring water into the teapot, Noel came out of his ground-floor room, yawning, in a silk dressing room he'd bought cheaply from the wardrobe mistress of the last show he'd been in. It was purple, with turquoise peacocks, and it suited his dark good looks, besides proclaiming loudly that he didn't even try to be a manly man, at least not at home. What's this I hear? he asked, arching an eyebrow at Zeke. I am now gainfully employed on the bill. Noel smiled, genuinely pleased, and shook his hand. Well done, old chap. I knew Shallow would like you. Noel had tipped him off to the audition, which hadn't been advertised in the stage. Shallow relied on his network of contacts, not advertising, to find his cast. I owe you one. Shh! Noel flapped his hands dismissively. Mama, dearest, are those crumpets? No, they're drop scones, in honour of Mr Gardner's success. Delicious. I'll be mother. Noel poured tea into delicate porcelain cups, being mother, and handed Zeke his tea. This was the moment where Zeke always felt just a little uncomfortable. Before coming to London, he'd never drunk from cups like this, and he was still unsure of the etiquette. The handles were so tiny. There was no way he could get even one of his fingers into them. But did you stick your little finger out or not? He observed Mrs. Coward carefully. Her pinky wasn't tied up against the cup with her other fingers, but it wasn't held out deliberately either. He tried to copy it, but he wasn't sure how successful he was. At least he knew not to slurp his tea or to pour it into his saucer to cool off, as his father used to do. Canada had its class system like everywhere else, but the English had so many rules of etiquette, and breaking even one of them made you not quite. Mrs Coward was a good person to study, but then the women's rules were slightly different to the men's. He'd be a fool to copy Noel, though. God alone knew what trouble that would get him into. Things Noel could get away with through sheer force of personality would make him persona non grata in an instant. When do you start? Mrs Coward asked. Rehearsals start next Monday in rooms and we move to the theatre in two weeks and open a week later. A short rehearsal time was normal in London, he'd found. Managements relied on their cast and crew's professionalism. It was the dancing that worried him. Thank God that Linton girl seemed to know what she was doing. Noel took a bite of scone. Who's in it? Zeke went through the cast, 
Noel nodding and making shrewd comments about each of them, until he got to Miss Linton. Linton? I don't know the name. She's new, from Australia. Oh, Australia, Mrs Coward said. How nice for you two colonials to be working together. He didn't say anything, although the term set his teeth on edge. Mrs Coward had grown up with the British Empire being the greatest power on earth. It would take her generation time to see that things had changed. Noel caught his eye and grinned, reading his mind easily. Too sharp by half, that lad. Oh yes, he mocked. I'm sure the colonials will just love each other. Fred nodded. Delhi's better than me on the dance front, but I do our choreography too. She grinned up at him. Don't listen to your big sister, Fred. You're pretty special yourself. They smiled at each other. Well, she hadn't expected to make a friend tonight, but she rather thought she had. Fred Astaire needed to come out of Adele's shadow, but that probably wasn't going to happen any time soon. Not when the girl had that ability to draw all eyes. There was just something about her. A sharp pang of envy hit Kit. No matter how hard she worked, she'd never have a tenth of Adela Stair's charm. She straightened her spine. She'd just have to make do with great dancing and singing, and some pretty good acting, too. The applause for Adele and Zeke was double what she and Fred had got. One day, one day she'd be as famous and as loved as Adele Astaire. Good show, Prince of Wales said. Let's have another drink on the strength of that. A while later, they all took a turn on the terrace overlooking the Thames. It was an intermittently cloudy night, so that the moon flashed out and was covered over and over again. A night when things seemed uncertain. Zeke and Adele leaned over the balustrade together, watching the late boats on the river. Don't worry about them, Kit, Fred said. She's got her head screwed on straight. She swore never to marry anyone in the theatre. Marry? She doesn't seem like the marrying kind. Fred crossed his fingers. Let's hope you're right. Waiters came amongst them, distributing more champagne. The crisp breeze off the water, the wandering moonlight coaxing glimpse from the women's jewels, the shiver of chiffon and silk, the dark blots of men's suits, the precise British accents now a little slurred from drink, and there the actual in-the-flesh Prince of Wales with whom she had danced, and the two of them from so far away. Kit leaned against the wall and lifted her glass to London, who welcomes visitors so well. Fred clinked solemnly. To London. There we go. Everyone get your hands on a copy of The Charleston Scandal. Now, Pamela, you have this thing that you do about the two-thirds point. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? Okay, so when I first uh, finish a first draft... The first thing I do is I look at how many pages there are and I go to the two-thirds point. So if it's 240 pages, I'll go to page 180 and I'll say, what's happening here? And it's astonishing um, 
how often the answer is nothing much mm. because that's that's the point at which we go astray in terms of structure where the narrative tension drops for some reason i don't know what it is but i've talked to a lot of editors and they agree with me that that is if it's going to go wrong the structure that's where it'll go wrong mm. um so that's what i check before i feel like it's a f- full first draft i i make sure i haven't let the narrative tension drop just before the second turning point and um and quite often it has, you know, quite often I'll have to add something in or change something. And indeed, that's what happened with the Charleston scandal was that was where that extra 10,000 words went Yeah. Um, to really kind of tighten everything, make it harder for her, push her, really push her emotionally um, so that so that we could see how her, her character journey worked. Um, yeah, so I, I'm really pleased that I did that in this case. Uh, because I think it's it's made it a much better book. Now, for regular listeners, you will know that Pamela has been on the podcast before. She has been in episode 104, just to name a couple. Uh, um, so you can check out uh, the back catalogue for um, a previous interview with Pamela. She's also the Director of Creative Writing at the Australian Writers' Centre and she's just such a pleasure to work with because she's oh, a wow. font of all knowledge and is so incredibly skilled at explaining writing techniques and concepts and is just such a wonderful asset to to the Australian Writers Centre and the thing is every time I talk a bit weak (laughs) <laughs> it's so true but You're one so of the <laughs> well I love talking to Pamela um because every time I do I learn something new in fact I think I emailed you yesterday and I said who knew about this <laughs> something that you told me I can't remember um what do you first of all what do you enjoy about teaching but second I'm so curious to know why, why do you think you have this? Because just because you're a good writer doesn't mean you can explain things well no, in, in terms of writing. What do you think has given you that ability or what experience or what, you know, thing has given you that ability to be so good at breaking down and explaining concepts in a way that people just get it? Okay, that this might be an answer that you're not expecting. Okay. Um, when I was a little girl, Mm-hmm. My best friend John, who lived next door, had an intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. So in those days, we didn't call it that. We called it John was slow. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that the first, you know, ten years of my life was spent with somebody who needed things explained to him, right? And explained to him in very concrete ways, mm. in very simple ways, in very straightforward ways. And um, I think that obviously I don't explain things in in our courses to people <laughs> at that level, mm. but I do think that's why I can do it. Right. I think, yeah. Um, I, I think that the ability to understand how to explain things concretely mm. is, is a skill that you learn, and I learned it young. Yes. And, and since then, of course, I've worked as a professional trainer and, and yes. a train, you know, I'm an educational developer and I've taught at university for like 20 years and, mm. you know, I've done a lot of teaching as mm. well as, as writing about writing. Yes. Um, but I think that – and then, of course, I, I was writing for children 
for you know my first books yeah my yes. first my first professional job as a writer was as a scriptwriter for the powerhouse museum explaining mm. things like steam engines to people ah, and yes. then abc kids and education television for several years right making programs about you know explaining stuff to kids where milk comes from um how fishing works, you know. Mm. And so I have a very, very long background in explaining stuff to people. Yes, because the thing is the beauty about if you are, you know, one of Pamela's students or a student in one of the courses she's created is that she not only explains the concept, she explains how you can master that concept, which is the bit that most places miss out on. They explain the concept very well, but they, 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 they don't get the bit on how you, the student, yeah. can achieve that result, which I think is invaluable. Well, but I think back- this, this structure, the, the structure course that's just come out. Yes. Um, I read, I don't know how many books on structure mm. before I, I wrote that, and none of them said how. Mm. <laughs> like, they just said do this. Said yeah. mm. They said keep the narrative tension up. It's like, okay, how? No, they don't yeah. tell you that. Yeah. They don't tell you the nuts and bolts stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you enjoy most about teaching? What I love, really, really love, mm. is seeing people jump. So, what do you mean? Uh, what I mean is that people don't improve on a steady slope. Oh. They jump. They jump and, in, oh. for example, in, in Stage 1, in the Creative Writing Stage 1 course, in Module 2, Mm-hmm. We get them to write the first at uh, the opening of of a story, and then in module four, we get them to write that same scene from somebody else's point of view. Mm. And over and over and over again, you see people jump in quality from mm-hmm. module two to module four. It's really marked. Wow. And I love seeing that. I love seeing the penny drop for people. Um, but the other thing I love is, is people coming out of our courses thinking this is something I can do. Yeah. You know, they come in going, oh, maybe I can, maybe I can't, Mm -hmm. but they go out feeling like they can. And that you see that grow as as they do more and more, you know, work with us as they go from the the basic courses Mm. through to the the more complex novel writing courses. Mm. You can see them develop their identity as a writer. Mm. But that's who they are. And that's a fantastic thing to be part of. It's just wonderful. Yeah, and it's wonderful because many of them actually succeed. They actually end up, you know, uh, having one, two, three more novels published. So it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just circle back to the Charleston scandal. It's 1920s London. How did you create that world? Obviously, you weren't around in the 1920s. Um, What did you have to do for research for this? Well, I went went to London. Um, Oh, you did? Oh, I did. for family reasons, I had to go to England oh, yes. several times. I remember, yes, yes. And each time I went, I, I went via London. Mm. And I have to say the theatre people there were fantastic. So there are a number of um, theatres still standing that were there in the 1920s and the theatre mm. managers let me go backstage and have a look at the green room and see what the dressing rooms were like and what oh, it felt yeah. like to be on the stage. And um, so that was just terribly exciting. Yes. Um, really exciting to, to be able to do that. 
and some things happened as a consequence of that. Like um, in one of those theatres, I saw a photograph of Tulula Bankhead mm. in a 1923 production, and I hadn't known she was in because she's American. I hadn't known she was in London in and in that in that year. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly she's a character. Um, of course, you have to, if you can put Tulula Bankhead in a in a story, you've got to do it. Um, mm. uh, and so. Yes, so I did a lot of that. I did a lot of, you know, London Transport Museum to see what the tube the mm. tube carriage would have looked like. I mean, a lot of this doesn't get into the story, you know, but it builds up your understanding. Yes. Um, and, of course, I I subscribed to the British newspaper archives. So reading the, mm. reading the newspapers of the day and in particular the stage, which is yeah. the, the theatre, um, the theatre newspaper, um, really, yeah, really shaped a lot of what what is there. And then, of course, because there are real people in it, um, I read a lot of their biographies and autobiographies, mm. Noel Coward, Gertie Lawrence, biographies about the Astaire's, his, mm. uh, Fred Astaire and his sister Adele, um, who was, of course, the real star. Um, mm. he, he, he was just her sidekick, which is funny <laughs> to think of now. Um, and and Adele's story is part of this story because she actually married a, the third son of a duke. Right. Um, so she, she in uh, in 1931 she um, she left the partnership. They'd been working together since they were children, and she 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 moved from 42nd Street to Downton Abbey, basically. <laughs> um, and so that was a big part of me going, oh, okay, that did happen. Um, mm. uh, should it happen? Um, but yeah, so so lots of biographies, a lot huge. I've got a whole stack of books about the British film industry in the 1920s, and that comes down to like two scenes, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What was the most enjoyable thing about writing this book? Um, I think it was. There are some scenes later in the book set at a gay cabaret called The Gentleman's Relish, mm-hmm. um, which is – that was the most fun to write um, because it is um, less formal, less, you know, mm-hmm. buttoned down, but also because it had such a wide range of characters um, uh, and it's the kind of place you'd like to go to, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, those of – those of you who, who like the film Cabaret, um, it wasn't. It's not quite as dark, dark and kind of um, somber as the Cabaret Club, but it's that kind of club. And um, and of course there were clubs like that in London at the time, and that was fun to write, um, just because it was something different, something I'd never done before, and people act a little outrageously there, and <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So that that was fun. And what are you working on now? You mentioned that you have a mystery um, a new coming mystery out series. next. Yeah. yeah, so the first book is called Digging Up Dirt and it's a contemporary. So I'm, I'm moving away from historical with this. It's a Pamela Hart novel mm. um, and it's it's kind of like the sort of mysteries you get with the Franny Fisher books but, mm. but contemporary. Right. So it's that level of mystery. Um Exciting! And it is exciting. I've Do you know when that's coming out? Uh, no, I think maybe for Mother's Day. Oh wow! Um, okay, so I don't, wait. I don't have a cover yet, but um, 
Yeah. And look, I am really, really excited about this. It's a two-book contract, so there will yes. be at least two of the Poppy McGowan mysteries. Oh, I love it. Um, and um, for those of you who do read The Charleston Scandal, known only to me until this very moment is the mm. fact that Poppy McGowan is the great-granddaughter of Perry, <gasps> who is who is Kit's best friend in The Charleston Scandal. Known only to you until this very Oh, um, my God, scoop. <laughs> <laughs> scoop. So, you know, in my oh, head, wow. um, Perry, Perry has come to Australia in the 19, late 1920s. I love it. Okay, and brilliant. And her great-granddaughter. Yeah. Oh, so I can't I like, wait. My readers will know I like people to be connected. Yes, oh, and, there and are connections. I should say that for people who have read um, A Letter from Italy, Mm. that Rebecca and Sandro come back in this story. Yes, yes. Brilliant. Oh, okay, fantastic. All right. Well, everyone, get your hands on a copy of The Charleston Scandal. Uh, I guarantee that you won't regret it. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Pamela. Thanks, Phil. It's always lovely to chat. There you go. I hope you enjoyed my quick chat with Pamela Hart and also the reading as well. I mean, did you catch that constellation of famous people? Pamela also mentioned them. Playwright and actor Noel Coward, Fred and Adela Stare, all those princes. You know, I just love how Pamela manages to fill her pages with exuberance and joy and anticipation, which I think I mentioned as well, because you can really feel Kit's passion and excitement. Uh, if you want to read the whole book, and I'm sure you do, it's out now with Hachette Australia. I mentioned in the introduction that Pamela is one of our presenters here at the Australian Writers' Centre, so if you want to learn how to write your very own best-selling novel, she is the perfect person to learn with. Pamela designed our popular Creative Writing Stage 1 course, which she created especially to inspire new or nervous writers to add rocket fuel to their creative engines. One of our graduates of Creative Writing Stage 1 is award-winning author Astrid Schultz, who has had two young adult novels published with Alan and Unwin, Four Dead Queens and The Vanishing Deep. This is what Astrid says about her journey. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Here's what Astrid Schultz says. I'd always loved writing, but it had taken a bit of a backseat while I was working in film and pursuing my career. And I tried a few times to, to write a different story, but I usually would get stuck around 20 to 25,000 words. And I didn't know or have the tools to kind of continue with that process to see the manuscript through. So that's what really led me to looking at a course to push through to the end. So the first course that I signed up was for creative writing stage one. It was just a great starting point of Acknowledging that this was something I wanted to take seriously, it was something that I was investing my time into. The things I found most useful about Creative Writing One was actually being in a classroom environment with other people who had the same desires and aspirations to be published as I did. So it also gave me a wonderful network. It was just this really wonderful time where you, know, you set aside certain hours a week and you would go into this very supportive environment and learn about something that you're extremely passionate about. So you get to keep that community alive 
through the Facebook groups to have to support you through your writing career. I enrolled in several courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and each one gave me some sort of knowledge or skill or advice that I didn't know about whatever the topic was, whether it was creative writing in general, how to write a novel, how to write history, mystery or magic. And it really kind of gave me this general understanding and base for going out into the world with my manuscripts and hoping to get published. I did envision myself being a published author ever since I was a young kid. And I'm so excited to say that I am a published author. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writercentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at writercentreau on Twitter and Instagram and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. All you need to do is search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.